Welcome to Touchline Radio. And welcome to Touchline Radio. Indeed, it has been a while and is uh, a saying all too common for me, but I am here with two wonderful gentlemen with whom you may be familiar with one of them, Jonathan Meisenheimer, and we have Brandon Stiff. And on this episode, we will be discussing the epic, epic run. Toronto FC historians, they've won the treble. They are the first team to win a, well, epic trophy. But when it comes to a North American title of sorts, Toronto FC finally brought it home. So welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Brandon. Hey, Adam. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having us. Oh, good times indeed. Well, uh, I guess a little bit of a a, a story behind this. Um, Jonathan, you helped me uh, go to my first ever TFC game, as we discussed on the show we did several months ago. And you have also been the one to help bring me to my first Eastern Conference final and... Well, MLS Cup final, and what a magic to have brought it home. Yeah, no, just a little bit of luck, I guess, and uh, getting uh, the tickets and everything. Yeah, well, over the show, we will be discussing uh, the stories behind, of course, the two gentlemen have gone to many, many games. But first, I think you uh, should tell us, Jonathan, about this tequila that is sitting here for us. Uh, yes. Um, so a few years ago, I didn't even remember it until just recently, but a few years ago, I had bought this tequila bottle. It's actually branded with, uh, with Toronto C on it. It's, uh, how do you say the name of the bottle or the, the name of the tequila? El Jimador. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, so anyhow, I had bought it with the intention of opening it once uh, Toronto C had won the MLS Cup, and uh, I didn't think it would be so soon. Uh, it was only maybe a few years ago, like I'd say four or five years ago, and uh, now is the time uh, we can actually open it. And uh, I don't know, you guys want to have a, a shot? or uh... <laughs> I'm ready for a little celebration. <laughs> I think we can. I'll have a sample. Uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Jonathan, I think because you're the one who, uh, of course, uh, brought this, thank you very much. Let's hear the crack. We will remember this in about 15 years plus. Ooh. Can you hear that? Right there. Right (laughs) there. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll carry on after this. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Uh, now we're feeling awfully warm in our esophaguses. Um, El Hemador definitely did the damage, and soon we'll be El Hamador if we're not too careful. But we're uh, celebrating that one, and let's carry on, shall we? So, honestly, the first thing that came to my mind, even in my notes I have written down, is the road to glory. In a way, slightly cliche, but really, having waited so long to experience that, I mean, at what point did you think... And I'll, I'll give it to Brandon first, but what did you think when you started supporting TFC? And at what point did you feel like this can be a reality? So, like you, uh, it was Jonathan that brought me into the fold of Toronto FC. I was a big sports fan, 
covering kind of the entire spectrum from, you know, American football, hockey, baseball. And Jonathan's passion for the sport as a whole really, you know, has that pull. And we started, you know, doing it together, attending the matches. There was some lean times, to say the least, to be kind to our favorite franchise. And, you know, when they started making those moves to bring in Jermaine Defoe and make those changes, that was kind of the first sign that we saw that investment in the club. Naturally, that didn't work out as intended. And as you can see now, the, the move for Josie Altador, Michael Bradley started to kind of push the franchise in, in that winning direction and see that investment in the club. And that was when the turning point kind of happened. And also, it was a bit of a different kind of hype because, of course, it was a bloody big deal when Jermaine Defoe came into the league. And those who have been watching football for a while had known that, of course, Defoe is a very well-recognized goal scorer in the Premier League. But uh, the X factor was not exactly there. And I, it felt like when Giovinco came in, Bradley and even Altidore, it was a little bit more subdued. But obviously, the big money was spent. Jonathan, what was, uh, what was your feeling behind that whole thing? I mean... At the start of 2014, when we when we got the foe, I mean, I know it's, uh, we look back and, you know, when we all swear, when we ever we talk about Jermaine Defoe, but, um, I mean, I think it was more than just getting him. I think it was us, you know, taking a stand and, and basically asking that question, you know, why can't we be great, right? That's what uh, Tim Lewicki had, had asked, um, and, and that's when it really started. I know, um, like I say, we don't look fondly on, on Defoe, but I, I think we should in a sense because, I mean, if it wasn't for... Uh, that time we wouldn't have had maybe Michael Bradley. We wouldn't have had the opportunity to get uh, Josie Aldador, which we essentially traded for. I mean, we sent him to uh, Sunderland, and then we got back uh, Josie. And I mean, look at you know, obviously we can't say enough good things about Josie now, right? Um, but that's I think, like I say, like essentially when the turning point happened, when we started to uh, progress, right? And and for me, it's just about uh, improving on the year past. Uh, it's gonna be hard to obviously improve on uh, 2017. Uh, but I think, you know, moving from 2013 to 2014 was leaps and bounds different and, and essentially the same thing happened in 2015, 2016. Um, so, I mean, uh, it was tough before um, the big changes kind of happened, but uh, I was always optimistic. And I think that's the one thing I, I know you had mentioned, you asked uh, Brendan uh, about, uh, you know, uh, what he thinks about uh, the lean years and whatnot. Um for me, I was always optimistic. I don't know what it was. I, I, I always, maybe I was just clueless or maybe I was just uh, dumb, uh, but I always felt like, you know what, they're going to do better and they're always going to be better and, and, and eventually they were, but it's not the way I guess that we all thought they would be. I don't know if that answers your, your question, but... Uh, well, of course, now we have the, we've seen how how those improvements made a big difference to win a treble like in such fashion especially I mean reaching two cup finals consecutively and then finally coming to a point where they they won it and honestly I wouldn't even say with ease but I mean in with total dominance for uh, I mean when you think about it in MLS terms so at what point did it become normalcy for you and what I mean by that is when it was the new factor, the fact that there was a franchise in Toronto and it just became this regular tradition of yours to be so active in the community. Um, you mean like when uh, I started watching the games or just going to the games in general? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not one of those guys who says I'm a, I'm a day oneer because, uh, I mean, to be honest, I'm not. I, I When I started um, watching, it was probably like 2009. Um, I mean, regularly, I guess you could say. Um, but, um, 
yeah, there's just some, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it was, but it's, it was something that I just, I, I got hooked onto it. Right. And, uh, and we never really won much. I mean, we had some success with the, the Canadian championship, uh, you know, with winning the Voyager's cup a couple of times. Uh, we, we had some success in the champions league. Um, uh, but, um, I don't know what it was, uh, but it just, it's, it's the sport. I don't know. It's the beautiful game. How could you not, uh, and it's our local team, right? How could you not, you know, support the team and and whatnot? Yeah, of course. Now, Brent, I've got to ask you, what do you recall the moment when you found out that Toronto was getting its own franchise? Do you even, do you have a recollection of that? I mean, at the time, I, I have to admit that I wasn't a huge football supporter or fan. As I said, you know, I was involved in a lot of other sports. Um, and through my understanding of, of, of the market and what I thought I knew of the sport at the time, I wasn't really in a position where I took it entirely seriously, I guess I'd have to admit, because of a lack of understanding, not because of a lack of legitimacy in the club. And like I said, getting out to games, seeing the atmosphere, seeing the passion for the sport of a, as a whole, seeing how it breaks down barriers between cultures and people in general, yeah. that was the attraction for me as someone as just a general sports fan and also considering how the ultras section has grown quite rapidly in the last little while as well and you've probably seen when it was just around the 111 section now it's kind of becoming that whole south south end yeah exactly i mean uh i mean it essentially started with like the red patch boys in, in 112 and it's expanded throughout the basically the whole uh south end um and it's great. I mean, there's a bit of a mix. You know, there's there's uh, some supporters who, um, you know, I would say push the team. They they actually push the team to to victory. I, I guess you could say. And there's other you know supporters who are in the south end. They're more um, really really big fans. I guess you could say. Like they come to games and they're really active. Um, you know, and then that's the good thing about Toronto FC is we got that bit of a mix when it comes to the supporters. We got all the different levels of of support. Um, so it's good to see. The South End isn't always unified, but um, uh, it, it is in a, in a weird way because we got the, the different types of support in in that, you know, in that area. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> were you surprised when Montreal, I think we spoke about this before, with Montreal being a, a city, the closest relative in terms of sporting power, uh, has that even grown in terms of a derby? And, and do you find that there's a club that is unlikable? Uh, let's take it to Brandon for that one. I think with that whole rivalry, the thing that I notice the most personally is that between the two clubs, you can sense that the players have a genuine distaste for each other and how they play the game. And when, that just adds kind of a, a unique element to it. I think in all sports, you kind of have this manufactured rivalry that kind of generates a buzz or an interest in the 401 derby you don't have that it, it it's real between the supporters between casual fans there's cultural differences between the two cities and that definitely is seen on the pitch so when it comes to the idea of the manufactured derby That's, yeah the trillium cup is a bit of a manufactured uh, derby we share the same uh, state and provincial flower but that's probably where it ends. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I would say so too. But it's uh, I guess it's an idea from the marketing team to to do something about it, which is which is interesting. But uh, at what point this season did you feel, Jonathan, first for this one, that this was going to happen? That they were going to win the MLS Cup. Um, I, I want to say it was um, it was probably around May, right? I mean, I remember even talking to Brandon, and I would say, you know, like I think we're going to do it. I don't, I don't think we're just going to win the one. We're going to win the treble. And uh, and I remember even after each one, each of the trophies that we won, I remember you would you would say to me, "That's one," and then "That's two," and then of course, you know, MLS Cup, right? I mean, um, it. It, it was. It was. You had to have seen it from the get-go. I mean, we were, you know, light years ahead of everybody else, and and you know, who was going to beat us, right? Uh, I mean, we only lost five times the whole season, and uh, we were just we were just that good, right? I mean, I actually think that we could have, if we actually started the season now a little bit stronger in the end, um, we would have been even farther ahead of that, you know, record-breaking sixty-eight points, and we obviously had sixty-nine at the end, but. Uh, I mean, that first uh, part of the season, we were a little bit slow. We had a few draws that we probably should have won. Um, but it was just, you know, it, I don't know. Like I say, you, you, I don't know how you couldn't see it. Yeah. Well, are there any talks of a rebuild, do you think? Or is this sort of, this is the core that the club needs to keep together? So this is absolutely the core that needs to be kept together. I think the club... You know, Bill Manning specifically has made it very clear that at this point, the goal is CONCACAF Champions League. The dominance of the Mexican sides in that tournament is well known to anybody who follows the league. Sure, there's definitely some moves that are going to have to happen to polish it and make sure that the team is, is deep enough despite the whole deepest team in MLS claim. But... Definitely, we have the the right core group of players, in my opinion. Yeah, and and how how do you think the club should approach the Concacaf? This is obviously a new challenge. If they've already done the treble and they know that they're good enough to do that, I mean, obviously, when you're playing teams from different countries in South America that have a totally different style of play, uh, how how should TFC adapt for that sort of thing? Um, as far as adapting, I mean, I, I know that they're going to be uh, training with um, the Mexican teams um, in January, uh, so I think that's one way they're going to do it. Uh, and, and Champions League is not anything new to Toronto. I mean, we've been to Champions League a couple times, so I mean, we have a little bit of experience. Probably not with this group of guys, but uh, but we do have some uh, experience with uh, with Champions League. Um, to be honest, I think that I mean the league itself and. Toronto FC are going to throw everything they can to win this trophy. I, I really do. I think um, e- even if you look at what they did when Montreal was having a, a little bit of a run, they rescheduled their whole, all their games uh, just to make sure that, that, you know, there was nothing to distract them from, from doing it and beating, uh, you know, everybody, you know, in their way. Um, and I think that if there's any team that's going to do it from an MLS standpoint, it's going to be Toronto FC. Um, I know that they're not even representing MLS because they're the Canadian representative, but um, if there's any team that's going to win this championship and not be a Mexican team, it, it's this team. So, and the gap is is closed significantly. I, I mean, you see RSL that they went all the way to the final um, one year, uh, a few years back, and Montreal went there, but they're nothing compared to the team that we have here. I actually think that they have a legitimate shot. Uh, they're going to probably end up having. Um, you know, their biggest contest um, in the second round when they face Tigres. 
Um, they're the, you know, it'll be champions versus champions. It'll be an epic, amazing. Uh, I mean, I think if it, you know, if they do it right, they'll actually be able to, you know, sell out the BMO field in early March. It'll be amazing. Um, and if they end up beating uh, Tigres and, and America, I think that they're, it, it's, it's smooth sailing all the way through. Um, but I, I actually think, like I say, I think they're they're gunning for this trophy. They want to win off the MLS Cup every single year, but Champions League is uh, the first priority, I think. Yeah, especially considering that the first team they'll be facing is the Colorado Rapids. So, I mean... Yeah, a bit of a disappointment there. I mean, I think we all want to see uh, a, a team that's not someone that normally comes to town. Um, I, I mean, I haven't seen anybody that was, um, you know happy about that draw that we had um but i mean it's fine and we were gonna we're gonna beat them and that's i I don't think anyone has any um feeling that we're not gonna win but it would have been nice to be able to see a team that we don't normally see Uh, i was hoping for toro fc from panama but you know i guess they'll have to maybe we'll have to see them in the final i don't know they're on the other side of the table i but anyway well, some of our pre-match chats, you were saying uh, you were wanting Tar FC, and it was uh, what was the reasoning behind that? Oh, my family's Panamanian, so I was just being uh, selfish in that sense. <laughs> I just wanted to uh, bring the family down to see uh, Toro FC, and uh, I was hoping as well the second round to see Cholos uh, for Brandon, um, but that didn't doesn't look like it's going to work out because they're on the other side of the uh, of the the tournament. I guess you could say like the the teams aren't going to line up. Yeah, and also considering our climate. Uh, the the round of sixteen is between the the twentieth to the twenty second and the twenty seventh to the first of March. I mean, us being local boys, that's a bit of a rough time to be playing football outside. Uh, so, uh, do you know of, of how the club is actually going to prep for that? Are they actually going to play on BMO Field in those conditions? So they've come out and the club has made it very clear that they intend to play the home leg at BMO Field sometime between February 27th and March 1st, I believe. Yeah. Amazing. And they have their, their first, uh, the home opener is actually March 3rd, so it's not only a couple of days later, we're actually having a legitimate league game, so um, it'll be cold, for sure. <laughs> it'll be well, but we're used, to, uh, we're used to it a little bit, or we actually have a fortune of acclimatizing because we've had a few minuses so far uh, in the last month, so yeah, I think it'll be interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the pitch is, uh, is heated, right? So, I mean, it's, as far as... You know, concerns about the pitch. I don't think there's there's that, but um, it'll it'll be interesting to see how many supporters come out to see Colorado in, at the end of February. Mm-hmm. Well, to to switch gears a little bit. Um, well, before we switch gears, I have a last question in regards to reinforcements. Um, what do you think the club should prepare for in the off season? I. Might not make a lot of fans saying this, but I do believe that Toronto FC does need some scoring depth. I understand that to St. Ricketts is a huge fan favorite. I'm not convinced that he's necessarily someone who can be taking big minutes in CONCACAF Champions League or, you know, Jonathan and I were talking about this beforehand, perhaps, you know, on a Wednesday night against Columbus or DC United to play 60, 70 minutes, that'd be great. If it's maybe two or three appearances in the course of a month, but to really fill a big role, I I don't think he's cut out for that. Jonathan, what's your take? Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to say where do you improve on on you know 
this team, right? Like, I mean, we got it, you know, we got depths and spades, right? I mean, uh, we almost get made fun of because we keep on preaching how, how much depth we do have, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, if um, it was interesting to see how we were going to handle the Eastern Conference uh, uh, final when we had uh, Seba and Josie out and we were like, well, who, who are we going to have up front, right? So it, it'd be nice to, to like I say, to, um, or like Brandon said, uh, to get maybe get some scoring depth or additional scoring depth just in case. Um, but um, just for the Champions League, it'd be it'd be a bit weird. I, I mean, I think we'll be okay as long as there's no injuries and as long as there's no, um, uh, you know, like I said, just as long as there's no injuries, we should be fine. Um, for the whole season, I don't I don't know if we necessarily need to worry about that either because I mean. Uh, it's a it's a World Cup year, but it's not uh, a year that we're going to have a lot of guys go to the World Cup. We only have one guy as of right now, Amanda Cooper, who's scheduled to go um, to uh, Russia in June. Um, so I don't really know if we need to really bolster the team. But if we did need to fill a hole, maybe a little bit of uh, scoring uh, up front. You know, it's interesting because the CONCACAF Champions League starts, uh, well, obviously before the MLS does. But it's also it, it it causes a lot of uh, it causes a lot of football right off the bat. There's no time to settle. There's no time to really well. You have to settle very quickly. Uh, do you think it's a good thing that the Champions League is something that doesn't draw on throughout the season or starts in the summer? Do you what, what's your take on in terms of of the the positioning of the Champions League? It's tough. The the, the scheduling is a little bit weird because I mean the uh, Liga MX um, is. It doesn't run the same time as MLS, right? Uh, it, it runs, um, I don't want to say the European way, but it runs from the fall to the spring. Um, so it's funny, like you said, because um, they're basically informed. I mean, they're, they're right in the middle of their, of their Clausura season, and so uh, we're just starting up in preseason. It's, it's a, I don't want to say it's unfair, but it, it's the way that it is. Um, good thing for Toronto is at least we had to play all the way till December, so we're a little bit geared up. Uh, but there's some teams like Dallas or Colorado or whatnot. I mean, they haven't played since the end of October, uh, so they're definitely going to need to turn it up uh, for Champions League in you know mid February. Um, but uh, it would be nice to have it maybe in the summer for us because we'd be like you know in the middle of our season. But it, I don't know if that would necessarily be something that uh, Concacaf would want to do because it's it, it's a little bit counterintuitive to the other. Um, tournaments like Liga MX, Clausura, or um, you know the World Cup for one. This year is a World Cup year, so when would we have it? Right? Um, it, it'd be tough. Um, I don't mind it being where it is, um, but it is a bit of an advantage for the for the Mexican teams for sure. Well, on that note, we're gonna take a little bit of a break, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this. So, Brandon, what was it like for you when you first heard that Toronto is getting its official football club? There was obviously a lot of excitement, and as Jonathan touched on earlier, there are a lot of people who like to lay claim to the, you know, day oneer kind of label. I did question the ability for a long-term viability and success of 
you know, the franchise in this market as a whole. I'm glad to have been proven immensely wrong. And yeah. Excellent. Well, now that this has finally happened and we are where we are today, uh, Jonathan, what does this mean for the expectations of the fans now that they have this team that has been able to achieve this? Um, like expectations for 2018? Um, I mean, I think we, we expect to do well in, in Champions League. I don't know if uh, necessarily there's uh, expectations to win it. I mean, I think that we can win it. I'm not sure 100% if, you know, uh, we expect to. I, I think it's a strong word to say we expect to. Um, but I think we still expect to do well. I mean, we're the strongest team um, there uh, in the league still. And I think that we would expect to still win the MLS Cup next year and the Supporters Shield. And I don't see any club that, you know has the ability to knock us off we might not win it and we might uh not be the you know the ones that left the trophy at the end of the day um but um i i think there's still that expectation that we would um it, it's it's weird because um in, in 2016 um we had no expectations we just we, we made the playoffs uh and uh, you know we just want to be uh better than i guess that we want to progress and, and when we had that first playoff game and a first playoff win against Philadelphia, it was, it was the greatest feeling you could imagine. I mean, it it, it was. Uh, I remember even going uh, to work the next day, and I still had confetti in my pockets and my shoes, and I'm like, how's? And I thought I had taken all of it out, and I still had, you know, th- this, uh, you know, like I say, the confetti in, in there, and um, you know, and when we played New York, and then we had to play against Montreal. Um, I mean, these these games are, are were uh, they weren't expect we didn't expect to be where we were, and that's what made 2016 so special. Um, and even going to the MLS Cup final, it's unfortunate that we didn't win that year. But um, I, I mean, no one can say that the start of the year that we expected to be there. Um, so I think you know it was good. It, we progressed, and that to me was what we needed to. I mean, looking back on it now, it's easy to say now because we won 2017, but. At the time, I was disappointed, but now looking back, I think it um, it made sense that we maybe progressed to that point, and then we didn't take it because maybe we weren't, you know, ready to win it all, kind of thing. And then, you know, in twenty seventeen, we did have that expectation from the get go. We expected to do well and to win, and it was a different feeling. I mean, we won, but we expected to win from the get go. So the, I mean, I don't want to say that it took anything away from it, but um, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm elated that we had won, but it wasn't that same type of elation that we had when we beat Montreal in the Eastern Conference Final. It was totally, two totally different feelings uh, in the end. Um, but I think that same feeling is going to happen in 2018. We're expected to do well, and you know, if we don't win the MLS Cup, I mean, I, I think some people will come out of the woodwork and say that you know we're we're not doing as well, and you know they're going to start pointing fingers. Um, and that's just that's sports, right? Well, what happens if TFC don't make the playoffs next year? Oh, I how could that? I don't even. <laughs> I don't think it's possible. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, um, heads will roll, and maybe we, you know, um, maybe well, we look to retool. I don't know. But I here's don't even, what's interesting. I never even thought about that. But here's what's interesting: the the expectation is now there that this is a club that w- it, now the fans kind of expect to perform. They say, okay. 
They've gone and won the cup. They've won the treble for crying out loud. Now, and like we're talking, we're sitting here talking about Concacaf Champions League, which is something that, I mean, TFC was unable to really dream of, and it's in- intriguing because they have done this with some. Uh, very valuable signings, but it's not on that same sort of projected scale. Like we're talking about the um, the Jermaine Defoe level. Uh, but what about, let's say, uh, a scenario, Brandon, if, if TFC don't fulfill those expectations, they crash in the first round against Colorado Rapids in the CONCACAF? I think a lot of people would be incredibly disappointed. Uh, as I've said in, in, you know, just general conversation, I believe the focus should be on that tournament, and if that comes at the cost of sacrificing the the season in MLS, as far as you know, the league table, making the playoffs, a cup repeat, I, I'm prepared for that because I do believe ultimately for both TFC and the MLS as a whole, the goal is for TFC to win that tournament. And while I do agree with Jonathan as far as the scheduling is concerned with Concacaf Champion Champions League. I think part of the benefit that they have is because it does occur so early in the season that perhaps if things aren't going according to plan and they aren't having success, there's still maybe some time to kind of switch gears a little bit. Obviously, you can't make the big roster moves because you have, you know, transfer windows and things of that nature. But as far as how you, you know, set your formation, you, you set your starting 11 and you how you kind of tool your depth that you do get an advantage at least in that standpoint and you have to you have to look for for it when you're at a disadvantage due to scheduling like Jonathan says with you know Liga MX teams being in mid-season form you know heading into the Clausura as opposed to our preseason form yeah no it's true I mean uh, I think the even the Liga MX teams um, they, they might be shooting for the Clausura title and they might you know say you know what we don't want to put emphasis on the Champions League so maybe we're going to focus on the Kasura and um, so I don't want to say it's a disadvantage for them. But I mean, but there's that difference uh, of, of approaching it. Right. I mean, we have the approach. We can actually take the approach of let's gun it and do it. And then we'll worry about, you know, the league in April or May uh, where we still have tons of time to fix anything and to make the playoffs or to, you know, jockey for a, a trophy or, or whatnot. Um, so maybe that is an advantage in, in our sense. And um, yeah, that's a good point. In terms of quality of the league, now we've seen, again, uh, if Jermaine Defoe was considered a big deal at the time, uh, Michael Bradley, Josie Altador, Giovinco even, uh, these are players that were recognized in Europe, um, but uh, in terms of scalability, they were not the types of players that are uh, remarkably celebrated. Of course, they are top-class players uh, playing on the MLS level. Um, but, I mean, what, what's your take on in regards to the MLS being the kind of league that starts to attract the younger talent that is really coming up the ranks? That, that uh, I mean, it is cliche to say, but as we know the term world-class do you think the MLS will be a league where where we can start talking on that kind of level? What's your take on that whole topic, Jonathan? I mean, I think we already started to to do that in a way. I mean, there's there's two different ways to look at it. I mean, there's obviously we're we're drawing um, talent from Europe or, or South America, uh, but I think the the big thing that MLS wants to do as a league, um, especially the USSF, I mean, they want to keep the young talent from going abroad and staying here. 
Um, and, and I think, I mean, there's, there's, like I said, there's a two different angles that they wanted to uh, tackle. Um, I, I mean, are we the Premier League or, you know, La Liga or whatnot? I mean, no, of course. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I think that we are um, drawing in talent um, from all over. I mean, um, and, and, and we have done it. I mean, even... I, I mean, I remember when Roma um, came to town, I, and I know it's uh, it's been a few years, but they came to town against TFC, and um, I remember even saying uh, to Brendan, I'm like, I'm I'm not here to see Tati or whatever. I'm here to see that guy right there, Michael Bradley, and he was still playing with Roma at the time, and thankfully he came to Toronto, and I was like, what are the odds of that, right? But I mean, I look at these uh, these young American guys, and uh, uh, you know, I I think they are attracted to uh, to MLS and, you know, it's not just a vacation or a retirement home. I think that's long past. I mean, that was maybe MLS 2.0 and that maybe had been, you know, five, ten years ago. But nowadays, I, I, I don't see that. I think something as well, uh, just to build on what Jonathan was saying, is not only do does MLS want to bring the North American talent back home where you see guys like Altador and Bradley um, you know, or even Carlos Vea coming with LAFC to, to attract the Mexican talent and keep uh, the younger North American players here. But I think they want to position themselves as well as a selling league where you see those clubs in South America. You know, they attract players who take this as the next step in their career because of the increased quality of the football. They can build upon their skills attract more attention, get more exposure because of, you know, the size of the media market in Canada and the United States, get that exposure, and then be sold on to other clubs in Europe as well. And I think that that's a great goal for for MLS to be to be aiming for, to be recognized as a league that, you know, this is a place where you can build your career and move on to the next step. Yeah, imagine we're living in a time where Chelsea sign the the next best thing coming out of Dallas that that doesn't even sound real yet but could you see that being a reality at some point i mean for me you know recently kristen pulisic had an article that he wrote for the players tribune and a comment that he made in it was the best thing for his career was that he had a croatian passport that he was able to leave north america and i think the end game should be to have the league recognized to a point where players like that feel it's a benefit to stay in Canada or the United States to build their career and then take that next step. Now, obviously, Pulisic is a talent at an entirely next level, but I think that that's you know, what we should be aiming for. Jonathan, any, any other thoughts in regards to that? I mean, no, I, I mean, I agree. I mean... Um... It, it it's it's weird to say like you said uh, i mean the next best star coming out of the you know fc dallas academy or whatnot and moving on to chelsea or, or whatnot um but i mean reality is that that's going to end up happening right um I, I think especially as the as the league grows and and the sport grows in in the united states and canada i mean that's just going to end up happening where we're going to i mean we're going to be bridging that gap i'm not saying that we're going to be you know equal there we still got years and miles to catch up but um, I mean eventually we are going to get that one bright star that's going to say you know what MLS or or whatnot is not enough I need to you know to you know 
do better uh, somewhere else. Now, also one thing I have to touch upon because it's an intriguing topic considering their dominance, at least in English football, is the Manchester City factor. And of course, the New York City FC, uh, they seem to be slowly trying to create a global franchise that is branching out from one club. Now, do you think this is a positive thing for the MLS as a whole, at least domestically? Or do you think it's a bit toxic, Brandon? I mean, I think as in in any kind of relationship like that, I mean, sure, there's positives and, and you know, negatives on one standpoint, I mean, I think we still need to recognize that, A, the sport is something that's growing here on this continent. So the exposure does help. Not to say that we need to be legitimized by anybody else. I, I think that it needs to be made clear that that's not the end game. But to have those kinds of resources as far as money and exposure, I think are great. As long as, as I said, we stay away from it trying to be some kind of way to legitimize the league. Because I think that is bad. We need to demonstrate that we can stand on our own. You see these types of relationships in other leagues. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it does need to be made clear that we don't need them to, to survive. Yeah. Well, even on that note, Canadian Premier League. Yeah, this was um, a hush-hush thing, but it's kind of come to the fore uh, after a little conference that we, uh, the three of us attended uh, in October. Mm -hmm. Are you excited about this prospect? I'm excited. Um, I'm a little bit um, unsure of what is um, happening with the league, though, because we don't know. Like, Is it starting in 2018? Is it starting in 2019? Is it starting ever... Where are the teams? We know what there's going to be one in Halifax, and uh, not Halifax, sorry, uh, one in Winnipeg and one in Hamilton. Maybe Halifax, but uh, I don't think they've been announced yet. Um, but, I mean, I'm excited because I think it's good for the game in Canada. Um, but um, I think the excitement's gone a little bit down because we just don't have enough, you know, meat and, and uh, you know, things to look at there's nothing yet essentially. Well, yeah and there's more than enough to try to chomp into tfc i mean the fact that they had to expand the stand and and rearrange a few parts of the building uh but to even get that to be a full house uh, took a little bit of time so to all of a sudden start branching out uh, to the smaller cities i mean perhaps hamilton could be a great place but to be honest it's it doesn't i mean it's not like the first place that I would start thinking about. I, I know Ottawa are starting, uh, but I can I would think Ottawa would try to make a team that can qualify for MLS. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, MLS is not going to expand into Canada any more than they already have. Um, Ottawa, it's perfect for the, the Canadian Premier League, if you ask me. I mean, I'm okay with the league not having the attendances of MLS, like not having 20,000 seaters. Uh, and, and whatnot else. I mean, I'm okay with it just being, you know, five, ten thousand people going to the games. I, I think that's the perfect size uh, for the for the, the teams um, and the league. Uh, I mean, obviously, some cities are bigger, like Toronto may be able to draw more people because we just have more people here, but there's going to be smaller towns like, you know, Moncton or Victoria that might only draw 5,000 people, and that's going to be a huge crowd for them. And that actually 
that's okay. I mean, look at the Toronto Wolfpack. The Toronto Wolfpack only uh, drew maybe, I think, at most like 7,000 people. And it was an awesome experience. And the atmosphere was amazing. And that's what I want. Um, I don't think it needs to be 20,000, 30,000 people. I almost kind of don't want it to be that. Uh, I was even saying, um, you know, I don't want to see BMO Field expand any more than it has. I think 30,000 is the perfect max because it has enough people during the big games. But it also isn't... Uh, even when it only has 20,000 people, it's, it doesn't look empty. Like, it's it's so disappointing when you look at, like, say, like, the, the A-League. I, I, I watched the Australian League a little bit, um, and you see the stadiums are so empty because they're in this, like, they're in these gigantic rugby stadiums, and they can hold probably, like, 50,000, 60,000 people, probably more. And to, to see only maybe 10,000 people there, it just looks empty. And it's, you know, it, it would be better for them and the Canadian Premier League, which, you know, I mean, I, I kind of look at the Canadian Premier League to you know, model themselves after the A-League as opposed to MLS, if that makes any sense. And I don't know if you guys uh, agree, but, I, I mean, I, 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 like, you know, like I say, like, I think that smaller is almost better. I think it needs to be recognized that, you know, MLS, at the end of the day, is an American league. And the interest is in growing the game in the United States and developing and keeping American talent. Yes, they've allowed... Canadian teams to latch on to that and become a part of that because of, you know, the unique relationship that, you know, our nations have. But we do need to have a framework and a structure in place without special roster restrictions like the MLS has that looks out for Canadian talent. And its number one job is to develop and expose Canadian talent. And I agree wholeheartedly with Jonathan that it shouldn't be a contest to compete with MLS that they need to be focused on growing the game and talent here. And, and the concern being Canada. And a beautiful thing I find would be to see football fields around Canada more. Imagine you have a, a team in Moncton or a team in Saskatoon or even in Halifax. You know, it actually, as Brandon, you're mentioning, it makes it more accessible for people to play and actually uh, strive for something because Canada on the national scale is absolutely not up to par. So actually having a Canadian soccer league can not only uh, give people who live in smaller rural towns the ability to actually learn and perform as much as the budget and the facilities are there, but perhaps this is the, the grand goal and mission is to finally put Canada in some sort of qualifying position. That's, I mean, from everything I've heard, that's a, that's the only thing that matters is is to, you know, develop Canadian players so that they, uh, you know, can qualify, not only just qualify, but do well in uh, the World Cup. Um, uh, I mean, I think that's the goal for uh, for any league around the world is is to develop your own uh, players. I mean, obviously, there's some countries that don't, they got a, a little bit of a head start, so they're maybe not developing. I mean... The, the Premier League, I mean, name an English, name, name a team that has a predominantly English uh, squad, right? It doesn't, it's not there. But, um, but I mean, most other leagues around the world are, are, are that's what their focus is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, I, I think that's exactly what the Canadian League is, is looking to do. Um, and I look forward to it because, I mean, I don't expect it to be quality, like, uh, like the way that we see in in, in the bigger leagues, um, but but that's okay. Like I mean, that's what we got to do to 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 rise up, and it might take twenty years to to be a really good league. But 
I think um, as we develop players, we'll start qualifying for bigger tournaments and uh, you know, we'll actually start to, to be good on the, on the world stage. And you know, as weird, as weird as it may sound, but that's a very responsible way of looking at it because 20 years is true. That's how long it will take for, first of all, the attraction of it to slowly build. Um, but by the time you're developing these players, who would, if you have a young academy, they're going to be six. They're going to be, you know, they're going to be very young. And then as they slowly start to grow. And you know what would be also interesting, I think, is how uniquely multicultural a Canadian national team would look. You know, the thing about England that's been very challenging is that uh, they've been, I think they're a little stuck in, in this traditional mindset that they want to keep it English. They want to do 1966 over again. And pardon me for anyone out there that's listening to this. I know that's a bit of a broad assumption, um, but that's the general feel that they have struggled to recreate. And I don't think they really can. And a lot of English players tend to stick to the English league. You've never seen them succeed outside. Um, and I know that's, I mean, in a way I'm, I'm, I'm stroking the fire a little bit, but it, it is true. So to think of people from Canada and by time we're living in that 20 year plus of whatever that, that team might look like, you're going to see people branched out from so many different parts of the world, especially with how, I mean, the world is its own kind of village in a way, but having the accessibility to see different kinds of levels of football Perhaps this may be something that plays to the Canadian advantage. Yeah, I mean, it, um, it's weird, but if you look at um, someone like Vince Carter, Vince Carter came uh, to Toronto and played with the Raptors, and look at how good we are at basketball now. I mean, I look at like the, the Vince Carter effect, and, and eventually we're going to start seeing the Sebastian Javinko effect, uh, where you know there's kids now that are watching him play and they're going to be wanting to be him and, and, and you know, we'll, we'll see that it might take 10 years for us to see that effect happen but I mean we saw it with Vince Carter and, and what he's done for Canadian basketball and and we're only going to see that I think with the success that Toronto FC has had and the players uh, you know that have come over and I'm starting to get a little annoyed at the lack of respectability that these European watchers have for MLS now now that I have I'm kind of I feel compelled and responsible to stand up for it a little bit because of yes. what I have seen and how much it has grown. And honestly, seeing the kinds of goals that Giovinco has scored, that that for me, having watched European football, I can actually say, well, that is world-class, that is top-class, that is what you should be expecting. Now, perhaps the game isn't as fast as as uh, certain games in England or in Spain or France or, well, I'm not going to say Italy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but I, I, me being someone who has been, who has, well, in a way, grown up with European football and watched the infancy of MLS in a way, or at least from a Toronto perspective, I have actually seen it grow, and that's why I have grown to love and respect it because of that. And it's not like a thing to compare. It's not. I'm not in a space of, okay, the MLS versus England, uh, whatever. That, for me, is a very low... That's not even skimming the surface. That's, uh, that's not the way to look at it. It's to see how much the league is trying to... Um, create itself without comparing itself to others. That's the point I'm trying to say. Like Jonathan said, I mean, I, I myself personally was a fan of just sports in general, uh, uh, fanatical to, you know, a level <laughs> unlike most people, as Jonathan, Jonathan laughs. But, um, 
you know, I was attracted to it because we had a team here. Yeah. And it was our team. It was something we could lay claim to. And being a fan of North American sports, you know, what you're looking for is athleticism. That's what you're you're taught is, you know, on this continent that that's what separates you from everybody else. And that's what MLS, you know, has always had in droves, you know, the, the prototypical athlete. It was never about technical ability or skill to begin with. And, you know, that's how I learned to to appreciate it as a league because it it wasn't something that was different like European football is or was, I should say, at the time. You know, it wasn't wasn't a game about tactics and things that I necessarily didn't understand as a newcomer to the sport. You know, it was just about pure athletic ability and it made the, the game more accessible to me. And then that, you know, learning the sport more, you start to, you know, follow other leagues. Like Jonathan said, we kind of went about it in a reverse order compared to most people. I think that is uh, America's downfall, actually, on the global scale, to be totally honest with you, because they are the most fit team in the World Cup. Sure. They are the ones who will run you to the ground, um, but they won't have that spark of magic. They won't have that little moment where you just go, wow. And you see how they failed to make it to the World Cup. Like, that is kind of a loud and uh, loud moment for me, especially watching them in the last World Cup and when they lost to Belgium and just seeing, like, the bit of golf and class between Belgium, which was a startlet uh, country that has a lot of extremely talented players, and it was remarkable seeing the States push them as far as they did. But unfortunately, deep down, you just know that the States won't be able to, to do it because they lack that finesse, that uh, unique touch, the... Um, uh, not not the athleticism, but the technique. I think it's the technique in which these players learn. However, on that note, we were talking about Christian Pulisic before and how he has gone to Dortmund and how much of an important player is. As an American youth player, he is finally the American product to come to Europe and prove his worth, right? And he's learning from these players around him, Right. And it's, I think that is what's very key for that next generation of American players. Absolutely. There's clearly a benefit to that. I mean, you know, the, the technical ability for, you know, American players is clearly absent when compared to other nations. And I think this last cycle has clearly demonstrated that the American philosophy of, of just we're going to outbrute them and you know just bully people i mean that that that's the american style of playing and clearly that has been unsuccessful i think there are some wholesale changes to you know the united states soccer federation and the whole setup that have been beaten to death by many pundits that need to be changed but absolutely i mean there are definitely deficiencies in technical and tactical ability, you know, from United States soccer. And I think bringing Bruce Arena back was was a big mistake. I understand that there was a certain nostalgia that they were maybe reaching out for, hoping that would be a spark, but that's the wrong way to go about it. You don't take a step back. You know, I recognize the contributions that people like Bob Bradley and Bruce Arena did for U.S. soccer, 
but they, you know, as, as a nation, it needs to move forward, not backwards. And I think what was intriguing about the, the MLS, or sorry, not MLS, but um, I think what was intriguing about uh, the U.S. men's national team was when they brought in Jurgen Klinsmann because he added the, uh, the European effect, the German effect, which they thought could work. And it did bring them enough to come to the World Cup, but nothing a little bit beyond. So perhaps with this slight shift of where they place their younger players, we could see a bit of a change. I think there's a... There is, I shouldn't say I think. There is this narrative that Josie Altador and Michael Bradley coming back to North America has in some way, shape, or form been detrimental to, to U.S. soccer. And I don't think that's necessarily true because I understand that you have a higher, you know, quality of, of technical ability in Europe. But something I think that people miss is how valuable is it to be on Roma, let's say, and you're getting 20 minutes every second or third game as compared to playing a full 90 day in and day out. Michael Bradley played the full 90 for every single game he was available for. Is there a gap in the talent level compared to, to Syria and the MLS? Absolutely. I don't think anybody discounts that, but I just don't see how limited minutes in Europe despite what they might have available in the way of training, is better than playing a full 90 day in and day out. Well said. Well, let's see what the progress is in the next little while, because um, we have seen, I, I think one thing that really was important for players like Bradley and Altador, especially Altador, was the homesickness uh, that was what really, I, I remember reading up on Josie Altador and seeing how well he did in uh, AZ Alkmaar, I believe he played, and he was a stellar player, but for Sunderland, he had one goal in 42 appearances, I believe, and and that was the main factor, so for him to be in more familiar territory perhaps was something important to him, not to say that that's something that all the American players will want, but there's a familiarity there for those players uh, because it's a big deal for them to cross the pond. In a way... When you think about it, uh, even Mexican players doing very well in Europe is a bit of a mixed bag as well, right? Um, so you, it makes you wonder a little bit of what it takes for, for some players. Like, for example, you have South American players like uh, Luis Suarez um, and even Lavezzi, who is a pretty solid player uh, to have moved now. I think he's a PSG uh, moving on from Napoli. But, you know, those players having that influence in Europe, I think they, they take a little bit from every country and every club, different philosophies that they experience, and then they bring that back. And I think what will be intriguing is seeing how well Brazil do. Uh, also, because that has been a nation that has... I remember growing up being like, Brazil? Those are the gods of football. And that was the generation I saw, right? Uh, and now we saw them struggle as much as they have. But I wonder if there's a resurgence there uh, with, with this new era of Brazilian football. And with that, we're going to take a little break. And, well, I think I, what I'd like to do is share the experience of what we all went through, the three of us. So don't go anywhere. 
We'll be right back after this. Welcome back, and before we actually finalize this uh, this rather lengthy episode, but that's okay because there's a lot to dissect, uh, I have to correct myself. I said Levetsi plays for PSG. He actually plays for a Chinese club, which is Hebei China Fortune. So pardon me, but that's intriguing because the whole... Um, uh, players going to China for mega money is another episode, perhaps a few episodes uh, in general. But to bring it back to what I wanted to discuss, I wanted to go through, and all three of us, of course, but because as much as you don't really recognize the moment in the moment, but walking towards the stadium for the Eastern Conference Final and the MLS Cup Final were... Two slightly different experiences, but what was something that you uh, you take from the moment? And Jonathan, we'll start on your end. Yeah, I mean, um, how do I say? Uh, it definitely was different. I mean, I've been to BMO Field, obviously, you know, a ton of times, right? I mean, I would say hundreds of times, let's say. Um, and it did feel different. I know it sounds weird, but it, it did feel different. And I'm, I don't know. I mean, obviously it was because it was MLS Cup, but um, it was a bit surreal. And then even now, even talking about it now, I'm kind of like, it, it's it's so surreal to talk about us winning, uh, winning the cup. Um, but, um, but, I mean, like I say, I mean, at the time, uh, it was obviously very emotional. Obviously, I'm, uh, you know, I, I mean, I was... It didn't show it, and you guys didn't see it, but I was tearing up a little bit uh, when we were walking through the concourse a little bit. Um, but um, but yeah, it's it was um, it 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 obviously was uh, you know the biggest game uh, that we went through, and it was uh, it was magical. I mean, even that uh, that last goal at the end um, with Victor Vasquez, the the scenes in that uh, that final minute were just. I mean, I, I I could watch it again and again and again, and um, I, I would never get bored. It's just phenomenal. Um, and, and like I say, I mean, it might take me a few more months to kind of like really truly, you know, uh, appreciate it because you know it's still pretty fresh. Um, and or it might be maybe it might take a, a few years when we're actually not doing as well as we uh, are doing right now. Uh, but uh, but it it's 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 a good feeling, and I you know I wish I could bottle up it, it's weird almost too i was even saying to you guys when we were going up there it's the feeling of going to the game and we hadn't yet won was something i wanted to kind of like bottle up because it's that feeling of what if we won could you imagine if we won you know the big game right um that's that i mean sometimes you want to kind of bottle up that anticipation because now that we won it's like okay well we won now we know the result um but Anyway, it, um, it, it's still an emotional uh, thing, and it's it's really good feeling to go into work on the Monday morning, puffing out your chest and saying, "Tell me now about uh, the minor league soccer team that I support." <laughs> <laughs> well, I, before I I drift on to you, Brandon, I just have this one moment uh, in regards to what Jonathan's saying, bottling up the moment, and <laughs> I remember when Armando Cooper came on off the bench. And you were you were going crazy, and you're thinking to yourself, honestly. And it was like a thing that I wasn't aware of, the inside joke. But when he rounded the keeper, 
and he it was just him and the net. And then he hit the post, and then Vasquez bundled it in. I mean, what a moment. But if Armando Cooper had scored that, that would have been crazy. But mm. in general, I mean, of course, you having had seen it and been a part of it, what 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 did you take away from the experience? Like Jonathan said, I, I still don't think it's really sunk in yet. Despite the fact that there, the whole season there was this expectation that Toronto FC was just going to win it. There was no, there was no conversation, and in your head you will always second guess, you know, whether or not you can close the deal. And the entire time, I know it sounds cliche, but the entire time I just thought to myself, I've seen this movie before. And you always kind of hope that the ending is going to be different. But you can't help but shake that kind of bitter taste from your mouth. And for all the flack that Josie and Bradley had taken for the failures of the U.S. men's national team, carrying an entire nation on their back, I wondered how that would affect them because I always felt like it was going to go one of two ways. They were either just going to be beaten by it or as they've shown through their character time and time again, that was going to be what pushed them on. And I'm not big on the whole motivation and culture thing. At the end of the day, you either work hard enough to get it done and that's what this team did. They weren't going to let the movie end the same way. And I felt that the entire time. And it wasn't like how a lot of people express it, again, as this expectation. It was just this confidence in the quality of the team, of the backroom staff, of everybody involved, that they weren't going to repeat the same mistakes. And, you know, obviously, Josie and, and Michael Bradley had an extra bit of a point to prove. And I, I feel in some ways that that was a positive that came out of an, a very negative experience for them. If I may add also, when they went to Columbus uh, to play the Eastern, the first leg of the Eastern Conference final, uh, they were getting booed. I remember watching the game and hearing jeers all throughout the match. Uh, and I think it was in relation to uh, the U.S. not making the World Cup. Well, I mean, not that I think, but it's almost definite uh, that the fans were voicing their disdain. And, and it was uh, it was a point to prove. And the fact that Josie Altidore scored in both games was huge. And I, the one takeaway, the first thing that came to my mind was when I, as you both know, like I was working the day of the final, uh, the second, so let's just go straight to the MLS Cup final. Well, both of them I was working for crying out loud. And you were for, for the for the Eastern Conference final. But, yeah. but I remember just meeting up and like, all right, this is what it is. But the first takeaway I have has to be the MLS Cup final when I, you know, I was in the Uber just rushing down to make it just in time because I didn't want to even miss kickoff for crying out loud. And I was outside of BMO Field and I heard the national anthem from outside the stadium. And I just stopped. I was running through the parking lot and I stopped in my tracks. And I heard that whole stadium rumble for O Canada. 
And then when it ended, just hearing the roar and you're hearing everyone stamping their feet and the whole rumble, rumble, rumble. And it felt so good at that, even though I wasn't inside and I can't imagine what it was like to be in the stands. But to be outside and seeing BMO Field and what it is and what it represents or what it has been working towards representing was a very unique moment for me. And then finally making it inside and catching up with you guys and, and just taking that whole moment in. It was so important uh, to, to be a part of that and to share that with both of you, uh, both of you, of course. But especially be- knowing, me personally, that you both have been there through the thick and the thin and you have been living the experience for so many years. And I like, and I totally feel what Jonathan's saying because we were going crazy, but you don't really understand the moment you're experiencing until much later, I think, because it's like, and then they're rolling out the carpet and then they're doing the whole lifting of the trophy. And you're like, yeah, this is great. And you're like, this is, this is awesome. Whoa. Yes. But, but it doesn't really settle in until I think a little later. I and I still feel like it hasn't totally settled in. And perhaps it won't until, well, perhaps TFC are struggling a little bit. And I don't want to say that, but that's kind of a truth because it's not a way of taking it for granted, but it's more towards the surrealism of it because this is uh, a, the kind of team that, I mean, if there was a relegation if there was a if there was a lower division MLS, they would be sitting there or not. They wouldn't be sitting there now. Who knows? But they might have not been able to attract the Josie Altador, the Michael Bradley, the Giovinco that have brought them the title, right? So to think that that was a that never became a truth or an existence for the club, which could have even meant, and I I don't like saying what if, but that could have even been financial ruin. Even though MLSE everything is very well connected in that whole world, but you have seen how, again, in Europe, sorry to say it, to bring it back, but when clubs get relegated, the financial loss tends to be monumental, right? Even though in the championship, there's a lot of viewings, but in like Segunda, B, the B division in Spain, um, you're you're hurting a lot. And to get back to the top is, is very, very challenging. So I think that was a blessing in disguise, but to bring it back to the point was the very essence of Toronto finally being a city to have brought home something like this in a sport that is not the predominant culture. There, a large part of me on that evening didn't want to leave because we had reached the pinnacle. And it's not to say it'll never be that great again because obviously there's there's an ability to to win another championship, to make another final. But it's, as Jonathan kind of captured it on that evening, that result was what every day had been for. That is That result that evening was what sitting through Tornston Frings and trading Max Rudy for Bright DK and pouring rain and minus eight on you know a December day. That's what all of that is for. And I know it might sound you know like a bit like I'm romanticizing, but at the end of the day, that's that really is what it's all about. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
so there's two things that you had mentioned about, uh, I mean, you know, just even about the, the singing of the national anthem and, you know, and that roar. And, and, and I think a lot of it was because, um, and it sounds, like I say, like it sounds weird, but like the entire city and the entire stadium like has been waiting for this in a sense. And we all knew it was coming. We all were, you know, I mean, supporting is not the word. Uh, it, it's it's more than, we were all, um, like, every one of us put in so much time and effort and, and blood and sweat and, and whatnot else to, to get to where we were. And, and we, you know, we were going to basically, you know, be behind them the the entire way. And we want, obviously, to make sure that they know that, right, when uh, when they go on the, on the pitch. And obviously, they, they dominated, and, and I'm sure that they, they felt that. Um the other thing too is, I mean, we talk about um, not realizing at the time, and and we're looking back at it, and we may be able to think about it, and and I think that a lot of that is just because, I mean, we have to look at each season almost like it's a, like a chapter in a book, and I, I don't think the Toronto FC's book has been fully written yet. I mean, I a little bit of me thinks that it's it's written. We just don't know what the future chapters are saying in it, and we're gonna live those future chapters. But um, I mean, this might only be the first championship of many, right? Or or the first you know uh, historic season, you know, in in a in a run of seasons. Um, I mean, I, as we go on, it makes like even twenty sixteen make more sense, right? Like, I mean, I mean, I have a twenty sixteen Eastern Conference Champions T shirt, and um, you know, and I didn't really wear it when I got it. I mean, I. I I had it. I got it before the MLS Cup final, and and I never really wore it since. But now I can wear it with like pride and say like this is a sign of the progression. This is a piece of the story, you know, uh, you know, of, of a story that we haven't yet even seen, um, finish yet. Um, so I mean, in any case, um, it, it is surreal, and I think it is. Uh, there's there's a lot more to the story that uh, that's yet to come. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to use dynasty because who knows? It might not be. Uh, we might be, we might go a whole another way, but um, but yeah. And I think the beauty of it for me is being amongst two gentlemen who represent, of course, everyone—the men and the women and the children who we were there, who have been part of that journey. And there's so many people now we don't even realize how there are youths that are being brought into that. Uh, the moment, the experience, I think it was to St. Ricketts, or I think it was Ricketts, who I remember watching him, and he was bringing the cup to our side of the pitch, and he was running, and he was giving it to the kids in the, in the first row, and the kids got to touch the trophy. And like we don't, and like as much as perhaps he might not be the most influential player on the pitch, but if there's something I have learned to fall for, is is the is the good hearts that are on the bench or are in the dressing room who uh, genuinely they they know what they're representing and again the core essence of even what i try to do here is like understand this strange global phenomenon that is football but that is essential i think is when you know how to share the the emotion because of how much it means to people and again, it, we don't even know how much it really meant in that moment because we were so caught up in it. I mean, Brandon went flying <laughs> a few rows down because someone, I mean, it, I'm, 
it's not that it's funny, but it was just like crazy. The 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 mental everyone was going crazy at that moment, and you just got launched a few rows ahead of you. I mean, man, that was not the best moment. But I mean, like everyone was caught up in that. But we don't even know what we were really feeling at that moment. You know what I'm saying? It's it's so overwhelming and. You know, naturally being launched two, three rows in front of me will will always, you know, be something that I remember and be a part of the entire experience. But you you don't really know how to appreciate it, and because it is so overwhelming, there are so many emotions running through you, and you don't know what you're supposed to process in that time. You just you know that you've you you've been a part of the ultimate goal. Yeah. Is your ankle better? It's still black and blue, but (laughs) (laughs) I managed to get here okay, Uh, so I can't complain. Well, I feel like we've had a very unique and comprehensive conversation in regards to it's a good summary of everything that not just TFC, but uh, North American football is growing towards or trying to grow towards, especially uh, the coming season with CONCACAF. Of course, we have a few months before that, but it's it's a good time to, to remember this moment, and I'm glad that we've been able to capture it. I know it's been a little bit of time, not that much, but, um, you know, a week and, and, and a bit, but it's still very fresh. And we all, the three of us still recognize it as being very fresh. And it's it won't be something perhaps we don't deeply have rooted in us as a feeling for a little bit of time. Maybe this is my youth coming out a little bit. But it, it's a beautiful thing to, to live through and experience. And uh, at the end of the day, I'm glad that I was able to share it with both of you. It was definitely a very special day. Yeah. And a very special experience. And on that note, uh, I would just like to wish all of you out there, thank you for listening for uh, for all the episodes, but this one especially, I think, uh, ran the, the timer quite a bit for everyone that was celebrating Hanukkah and Christmas and uh, Kwanzaa. It's a good time to have a good time. So don't forget to let your hair down. And thank you for uh, the support throughout the year. Every year is getting quite intriguing. And, uh, of course, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to shoot me an email at touchlineradio at gmail.com or reach out to Twitter or Instagram. I'm here for you. So this is Adam Esker signing out. Thank you to, of course, Jonathan Meisenheimer and Brandon Stiff. You've been listening to Touchline Radio.